Hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, we have yet to talk much about Ridgewood, which is on the border of Brooklyn and Queens. Uh, um, and I, I'm sure Levittown has come up at some point, but I, I look forward to going deep into those neighborhoods and that community uh, out in Long Island with our fellow uh, Dodger member here that is just joining us, Mr. Dennis Champney. Uh, first time on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good afternoon. How are you doing, Sam? Oh, I'm fantastic, and I, I cannot wait to to get uh, to dive deep into this with you. And, and I was telling you off air yesterday uh, via messenger that ironically I got taken into Ridgewood uh, last yesterday just to, to take a delivery from Greenwood all the way to Ridgewood. So with my very eyes, I have freshly seen the neighborhood. So as I always like to do uh, with with our first time guests on the podcast, I'd like you to go over your personal history as well as of course your baseball history. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I was born in Ridgewood, and um, I guess my most formative experience in Ridgewood was uh, St. Bridget's Elementary School and um, Yardstick and Pointer Reclamation Center, which nuns put to good use. And um, my friends and what we did, uh, growing up there was a completely different experience from what my suburban friends had Um we constantly climbed things, um, and it was crazy. I'll tell you some stories later. But after that, we moved out to uh, Levittown. Our, actually, our house burned in, in Ridgewood, and my parents uh, were fairly poor, and we uh, had to stay in the burned-out house for three months. Windows blown out, smoke licks up the front of the building, and um, we lived in that mess. And my mother, who was... Italian said, I am not going to put up with this. So she wrote a letter to the landlord threatening him with violations and he gave her $700 and she took that $700 and had her father-in-law, her dad didn't drive out to Long Island. And her second trip, she saw the house she wanted. That was our house. And she, and she put the down payment of $700 on it. And the next uh, two months later, we were out of that house and my Levittown experience began, which was awesome. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I went to i i played I played football at uh, at Levittown, and that really was another formative experience because I was able to parlay that into a college education at Towson State. I was actually the first running back uh, at Towson, and uh, I had some pretty good years. I only played there two years, but I'm still. I still got some. I think I still have some records on the books down there. Uh, Towson, of course, has grown exponentially wow. since the time I was there. Hmm. Yeah, so it was only about five. It was it was a great place. Uh, that was a great experience. We used to after after football season on Fridays, uh, Raskeller, uh, in the student union, they would have beer, and the president of the college, a young guy, kind of a JFK type, uh, would come down and sit with my wife and I, and we shoot the shoot the breeze, and have a few beers. And it was very nice. Um, let's see. And um, 
we, we, we really, I really enjoyed that experience. And then from there, I went into teaching. And that was really something. Because my first job was in rural Maryland. <laughs> and one of my first days, I pulled into the parking lot one morning. There were kids in the lower parking lot where the students parked. And they all had their guns out. Now, this is 1972. I said, what? So I asked one of the assistant principals, what are those kids doing down there with the rifles? She said, oh, squirrel hunting season is going to start soon. They're just showing, each- <laughs> showing off their rifles. And they actually had a rifle range downstairs in the high school. In the oh school? North Hartford, North Hartford High School. And... Uh, it, it really was stepping back into the previous century, the way that, the, you know, being a New Yorker, you're used to, you know, being treated a certain way. And uh, it was a very rigid place for me to teach, at least not for others, but I was like, what, 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 what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why do we have to do this? And, uh, you know, we had these stupid meetings. And I, why are we talking about uh, SAT scores going down across the nation? You know, we have a whole, one hour of can you see me type of thing with uh, somebody up there talking about that. And uh, anyway, uh, one of my observations, uh, because they would have these observations, and one of them was uh, uh, by the principal. And it was called down to the office a few days later. He says, well, I got your observation right here. And traditionally what happens is a principal, whatever, supervisor comes in your room, listens to the notes, listens to whatever going on, makes observations of the children. <laughs> this guy said to me, he said, um, this is pretty, it was a pretty good job. Uh, you know, he was a real farmer. And uh, he said, it was a pretty good job. I, there was no cursing. I listened to the kids. They sounded interested. Um, you didn't curse. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> anyway, so it was a quite experience. It was, it, was, it was pretty much culture shock for me coming from New York and then being in a place with all these farm kids and the God, the stories they would have. And, um, so, so if you could you know, give me a year, give me a place to, uh, as to when you went down to Maryland. Oh, in 1968, um, okay. I was recruited. Okay. I was, yeah, yeah, I was being recruited to play football. Um, two years out of high school, Nassau Community was where I was attending full time, and they didn't have a football team, so I joined a, a, a thing called the Long Island Broncos. <laughs> And uh, that was an experience. Um, there was a fight one time, and I was not a fighter. I did not get involved in fights unless I really, really had to. Of course, growing up in Brooklyn, you had to fight. Um, I had my share, but I tried to avoid. And, I, God, I wish I had a camera because there was a mob that came down out of the stands. And this one guy tried to stop them, and it was like a club. How did those mob had passed this guy? He was standing there, I swear, with no pants. Somehow his pants were off. He's standing there in his boxers. I said, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. And um, my wife can attest to that story. I was like, nah, I'm not getting in any fights. Nah, that's okay. I like my teeth. And, uh, you know, talk about fights. That's, that was, <laughs> exactly. you know, that was a big That was a big thing in Levittown. Uh, all the guys, you know, were really from Brooklyn. And they brought all this mentality. Mm-hmm. One day, one night I was there. Well, I was at a block party, and just as I pulled up in my trusty 54 green and white Chevy with the huge back seat, which I loved, um, got out of the car, and there broke out one of those bar scene fights in this block party. Everybody starts fighting. 
And the problem is, is that on the Hicksville Lovettown border, and we did not get along well with each other for some reason. Just, I think that's just the way it was. And uh, check it out. I'm watching this one guy, short guy, long hair, kind of a rocker. I'm watching him throw punches. I said, this boy, this guy can really fight. Turned out it was Billy Joel. <laughs> and then I found out later that he played on the high school. <laughs> yeah. He played on the Hick- oh, wow. high school football team. And I played against them. And that, that was funny because the year we played them, holy cripes, the, the, year, bef- the year before, oh, this is, this is crazy. The year before we played them, um, uh, on the varsity level, we had, we, they were scheduled as our last game of the season. And they were undefeated, untied, and unscored upon. And we were down to two running backs, me and somebody else. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, all week long. I said, these guys, and we heard rumors of them, they were huge, they were this, they were that. And uh, all week long, Sam, I was praying, man, I don't want to play this game. And uh, I'm sitting there. And at night I would say, you know, holy mother, please, you know, somehow let me not play this game this week. You know, I was going to say, you know, I have a cold. I can't, I can't play or anything like that because, you know, you got your pride. But anyway, so all week long I'm praying, all week long I'm praying. And then that we played on Saturday mornings. And on Friday afternoon, November 22nd, 1963, the world changed, and that game was canceled. And I have often thought, wow. did, I have something to do? did I have something to do with the Kennedy assassination somehow? Did they hear my prayers? <laughs> <laughs> Did they well, hear, I don't know. I mean, like, my... if, I, I, they're like, would that be the specific thing? Like, they're like, well, you know, we're don't don't you worry. Uh, somebody's already planning to assassinate the president this day. I, I, I it's just, it's fun. I, I, it's funny the way your the sports superstition, if you will, uh, the way yeah. the way that we as sports fans kind of think that we have something to do with everything. You know, it intersects for you with the day Kennedy was assassinated. Yeah. Well, no, you know what? And I totally forgot that for many, many years, 40 years later, my nephew was, I was talking to my nephew on the phone and he played for, uh, who did he play for? Bishop somebody. Uh, I don't know, Bishop somebody out, out, out in Nassau. And uh, they had a big rivalry game coming up. And I said, uh, yeah, what happened on mine? And I told him about, you know, our big rivalry game with uh, Hicksville. And uh, I said, oh my God, Ryan, I just remembered. I was praying all that week, man. I had like a little, little grotto set up around the house, you know, Holy mother, please, you know, something happened here. <laughs> and, yeah. And, uh, I did, I had totally forgotten that because the shock of it and all, and what I had been thinking yeah, about right. previous week, you know, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was well, crazy. Yeah, so anyway, getting back to that. Good. No, no, I was going to, I was going to say that, um, I wanted to go to Ridgewood, if you will, but but I, I think you had a, a to, you have a point to finish. Yeah. The uh, anyway, the the Hicks, so anyway, this team they were huge. We played on the next year on the varsity level. We, they had moved up, and we had moved up, and these guys were like one kid's name was Sontag. I think he was six eight. Larry Wasaka was their fullback, six foot four, two hundred and forty pounds. Now for a high school kid, that's a pretty big running back, and I was not the starting running back. It was a kid named Richie Crashin. There were three other running backs ahead of me. <laughs> and I had a pretty good preseason. Uh, and I had this wonderful coach. His name was Jim Amon. He was the assistant coach. And Jerry Jewell 
was our <clears throat> varsity coach. Jerry was a, um, Amer- a Native American, and he was Jewish. It was just a great combination. I wish I had a photograph to show you of Jerry. And we're still friends to this day, Jerry. But anyway, uh, Richie got hurt. And I could hear Mr. Amon say to, say to Jerry Jewell, put Champney in. And I would sit on the bench, and I would be so frightened because these guys were so big across the line. I don't want to go out there. <laughs> like, you know, if you, you know, when you're sitting there, you don't start. It's, it's really hard to, to go into a game. And uh, I kept saying to myself, Mr. Amon, shut the hell up. Please. Come on, come on, man. Don't say anything more. <laughs> I don't want to go out there. <laughs> but it turned out I did go out there. I had a great game. <laughs> uh, it, was the game of the, it was the game of the week on radio. I, it changed my life, actually, because when I, as I walked home, my neighbors coming out, Dennis, we're on your radio. And my teachers, who had never spoken to me about anything before, would come up to me except to yell at me and say, you know, champion, whatever you're doing. Um, anyway, they came out. Uh, the whole, you know, as I walked down the hall, hey, you had a great game Saturday. So it was really a, a really a, a moment in your life that you have that pivot point. You know, it's a whole, and mm-hmm. it, it really did change my life. But the Ridge, the Ridgewood mm-hmm. thing was, well, it was great. Uh, you know, growing so, up. So, with so, the so here's my, so here's where I, here's where I want to start with Ridgewood. Um, I guess I'm always confused about whether it's officially a part of Queens or officially a part of Brooklyn or officially part of both. So are there two separate areas that are in both boroughs. At the time I lived there, it was it was Brooklyn, Ridgewood, Brooklyn. And from what I understand, the 1977 riots that they had in Brooklyn at the time, due to the blackout, um, <clears throat> the people of Ridgewood requested that their zip codes be changed to Ridgewood to separate them from Bushwick. So technically, I <laughs> technically I was from Bushwick, and um, Bushwick High School was actually right across the street from me. And um, the powers that be decided that where I lived in Ridgewood was now Bushwick. So yeah, there is that uh, yeah. back and forth about where you, where you live. But now I'm pretty sure. Well, I don't know. Irving Avenue. Well, I'm looking. Actually, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it right now, and it, it does say Queens, New York, at least in terms of the the Google map. And um, I'm actually going to have the uh, uh, Brooklyn Borough historian on next week. Uh, but we we were. Cons- I'm, I always. I'm not exactly sure where I'm going to go on the map with him. I always we go all over the map. Um, but looking at it right now, it's a very small area, really. Uh, probably, I mean, I, I can't do my math correctly, but it really only has, it has about like one or two different grids, you know, that, that kind of uh, go against each other at Forest Avenue. And um, where do you remember where you lived? Yeah, sure. Uh, Irving Avenue, which would be the western border, I think, of Ridgewood. So crazy question, do you remember your ad- address? Yeah, 337 Irving Avenue. 337 Irving Avenue. See, it it has it. It does have it in in. Uh, it's technically in Bushwick now. Your address. Yes, right, right. Uh, it was so close though. I mean, we always knew it as Ridgewood, and people would ask, yeah. you know, where we're from. We said Ridgewood, and because uh, the, the boundary did change. In well, that Myrtle so Avenue area. That Myrtle Avenue is a big uh, thoroughfare. 
yes, that was the big thoroughfare. Um, but, uh, yeah, growing up in Brooklyn, uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers, man, I, I lived and died with the Brooklyn Dodgers. I just, I, you know, I couldn't wait to see them. Jackie Robinson was my hero. Uh, I did get my dad did, did take us to one, one Dodgers game. And I will never forget the moment. I'm, I was probably seven or eight that we came off the bus and then Hey Dennis, we lost you. I'm not sure I if had, you can we, hear me, but uh, Hey Dennis, we lost you for a I, second. I, uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, we Hello? can hear you now. Uh, but if you want, Hey, okay. if you, uh, we can hear you now, but if you wanted to start over. Yeah, I, I, I the Brooklyn, uh, my trip to Ebbets Field, uh, we went there. My dad got tickets for, I think it was the uh, uh, last game of the season, and somehow he got tickets. And I'll never forget, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, that part of Brooklyn, there was nothing but asphalt and concrete. That's what you played on, the street, the asphalt street. And <laughs> even our park that was adjacent to the Bushwick High School, the softball field was asphalt with painted lines. <laughs> there was no such uh, thing as uh, there was no such thing as a green grass field for us. And uh the only thing there was was a soccer field way up on Irving up near Highland Park. And that had kind of like a uh God, it was almost like a a, a pumice stone surface. <laughs> and they played soccer on that. You couldn't play football on it because if you fell you just get it would just it would be like a uh, a vegematic on your body. It was just no, no good. Um, but, uh, you, but, but you, you, we pretty much divided up the school three ways. One and the largest group was the Dodger fans. And this other group, which was slightly smaller, were the Yankee fans. And the third and smallest group were the Giant fans. And uh, you, you, you were pretty much, you know, in that kind of um, click, so to speak, of who we were a fan of. None of my friends, none of my close friends were uh, Yankee fans. Couldn't be a friend of them. I mean, it was like a war. <laughs> and I can remember, remember my, you know, a Sunday, Sunday dinner with my uncles arguing. I mean, really, you know, you know vein-popping, screaming at the top of the lungs at each other about the Giants or the Yankees or, Mostly with the well, mostly with the Giants and the Dodgers, as I remember, because one of the uncles was a real. So, so you would, you guy. would still you would still say that at the time uh, of your childhood that that the the bickering between fans was most likely between still be, because they probably you know because they played each other twenty two times a year as opposed to just seven games with the Yankees. But uh, during right. your era. During your era, I mean, the Dodgers and the Yankees were just constantly battling each other. And to, to the point that, for me, looking back, I still can't believe the Dodgers didn't win one of 52 or 53. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a re- you know, it's really, <laughs> it's weird. Uh, it still sticks with me today that they, you know, that they only won the one in 55. And my God, I was in second grade and I, I, I course it's Catholic school no tv no radio you know you couldn't wait to get out of school to hear what happened i don't think there were any night games then either and uh, i remember they had won 
and it was either the day they won or the day after, but going to school, people had thrown clotheslines across the street to the tenements and had hung banners. And, you know, the, the, them bums did it. <laughs> and we won. And uh, they had taken, they, you know, used their, used their sheets, their good linens wrote on them. With what? I don't know. But I remember that. I said, Jesus, this is, this is like my world. This is like winning the lottery. I, I mean, there was no lottery back then, but I just felt so good. And really, really was so excited for Keane, for Gil Hodges, for Campanella. All of those guys, I, I really, I love them. You know, I just really did. And then, and you can really say, like, when you think about, when you think about it from uh, a world champion, any world champion, uh, except for like the Yankees, where it just keeps going and going and going. Generally speaking, you really just have four months just sitting that glory, and like you're on top until that season comes back. Five, big five months at most, because all of a sudden. Even if you're the defending champions, you still have to prove it once more. Yeah, you do. And, uh, of course, the, the, the famous line was, for all of us, was, wait till next year. We'll show you. <laughs> and that really meant something to me. And uh, wait till next year was, you know, 55 was next year. And I think that was one of the headlines in one of the papers. You know, it's next year. And uh, was that was great. This, and, this uh, is next year, yeah. I think that was yeah, the. Um, the uh, I think yep. it was. I think it was the sports side of the Daily News because the other side right. said who was a bum and had the the drawing of the bum. Right, right. I and do. you know, you know, since we're since we're we're talking about this now, uh, I'm, while you continue on uh, on your way i'm going to confirm that that is the same actual paper that i'm thinking of because uh, i think that bo- i think what you're talking about are both the daily news so give me one second go ahead yeah I, I i think they are they are they are too and it's either the daily news or the daily mirror uh it wasn't the post because nobody i don't know it must have been like a yankee thing nobody got the post in my neighborhood but my dad brought home the mirror and the news every night and, um, yeah, so it had to be one, the mirror or the news. But um, so they won. And two years later, three years later, they announced that they were going to leave New York. And I was just devastated. I could not believe this. So I was in a candy store that my parents had formerly owned. And I'm like nine. And then it was pretty much a hangout for uh, lunchtime for lots of trades guys in the neighborhood that came in and had a lunch. And I heard them talking and they said, you know, if we kill uh, Walter O'Malley, the Dodgers won't leave. I thought to myself, wow, really? You know, you're a kid, you hear an adult say that, it must be true. So all week long, I was praying that someone would kill Walter O'Malley and my Dodgers wouldn't leave. <laughs> and then, of course, remember now, part of my life is very religious because I'm not St. Bridget's. And it dawns on me, May, that what I've been praying for is a sin of commission or omission, that I was praying for something, but it didn't happen. <laughs> so you're still there? 
Hello? Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm listening fully. Oh, you are? Okay. Okay. So anyway, uh, God, now I'm going to have to go to confession and confess to the priest that I was really praying for someone to be killed. And on Saturday afternoons, we were all required by our school to be in confession on Saturday. And then on Sunday morning, we had a children's mass where they took attendance. Anyway, uh, I think it was a nine o'clock mass, which I hated because that meant six days a week. I'm getting up before I want to. So I said, oh, okay, I'm going to have to go to confession, confess this. And it was really, you know, it was really nerve wracking. So as I'm standing online, um, I had picked out the priest because I knew he would go easy on me. His name was Father Gribben. And I'm on Gribben's line. And it's a long line. All the kids, all the guys are on that line because, you know, what did you do? What did you do, kid? Uh, I, uh, impure, impure thoughts and impure deeds. Well, can you explain those? I, nah, I don't really want to, but you, know, you had to. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm standing on line, and Father Belay Levins comes out of, to open one of the confessionals. And I'm on, I'm on maybe the last on Gribben's line, and he grabs me. He says, go over there to Monsignor Bracken's line. There's nobody there. I was like, why? Now, Monsignor Bracken was this big Irishman, imperious person. You know, you just didn't, you didn't even look at Monsignor Bracken because he was just this really big, scary guy. So I got in there, and, uh, you know, even though I was kneeling, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And uh, I could hear my knees knocking, even though I was, kne- I was kneeling. <laughs> I was scared. And uh, I told myself, so I, you know, my senior, uh, I wish that somebody would kill Walter O'Malley so the Dodgers would stay in Brooklyn. And it was a silence. And then I heard him say, step out of a confessional. And I said, oh, shit, now I'm really in trouble. He steps out of the confessional. He says, here's $5. It didn't happen, but go say five our fathers and five Hail Marys and don't come in here again. <laughs> that didn't happen, but I really did have to confess that. <laughs> well, it was, and, uh, it was Brooklyn in 1959, and that is where the, the uh, movie Goodfellas starts. So, uh, you know, you yeah. can really say that like, there's, who knows what this priest was into. <laughs> yeah, yeah what? Well, well, he said, well, you know, that's a very bad thought. You shouldn't have thoughts like that. And that, uh, you know, Jesus wouldn't like that. And, uh, you know, all the old time, every time I say something, like, yes, father, yes, father, yes, father. I just want to get the hell out of that confession. Right, right. <laughs> go through my penance and then go even on. If we, even if we don't want the Dodgers to leave. <laughs> yeah, even if we don't want to, you couldn't do that. But yeah, that was that was. Sorry, go ahead. I had I had two of those experiences in my life: the Dodgers leaving and Walter O'Malley, you know, wanting him to be killed, and then JFK dying, and I'm praying for, you know. So maybe <laughs> I have some special, maybe I have some special superpower. I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's uh, it's been funny that way. Um, but, well, uh, I was going to yeah, say that so in then, terms so of then, the, daily, the daily news, uh, 
the Daily News, 1955, by the way. Uh, the the oh. I think it was probably like an uh, an e like a morning and an evening edition. Right. So yes. That, that's yes. that's that's what I think it was. It there were two covers yeah. that day. That's right. There were. That's right. I forgot that. Uh, yeah, actually, above my desk in my office, I have the uh, the team photograph of the fifty five Yank- uh, fifty five Dodgers Yankees. Oh my God, the fifty five Dodgers. Oh, And they're all looking down at me now, saying, exactly. "Well, thanks for trying, Dan, but you know, um, but 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 then but then two years later, now my brother was my oldest my oldest brother Clark was a great baseball player. He had a hell of an arm." He was a lefty, and he could really he could really throw the ball, and he was like the star of the team, and uh, you know I didn't play any sports, uh, and I think the reason may have been that when I was six years old, I was walking home from school by myself in a rainstorm, and a Stella Doro truck came down the wrong side of Myrtle Avenue, and wiped me out. When I say wiped me out, I remember flying through the air, and I hit a um, chain link fence and that's the last thing I remember because they found me on the other side of the street that chain link fence that acted like a, like a trampoline and um, later oh on God. that no. night I got, later, yeah later on that night I died you said you were six and years I old I was six years old I remember and I remembered and I died and um, Father Ribbon was there and he came running out of the room where I was because back then they didn't do all the, I don't think they did like, you know, mouth to mouth or any kind of resuscitation, you know, right. you know just say, is he in the hands of God? And, you know, anyway, Grimman was running out of the room says to my parents, you know, he's moving, he's moving. He woke up. So that was, you know, and I remember. So, so when you said you died though, when you said you died though, uh, that was somebody claimed you didn't have a heartbeat or. Yeah, they 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 said he's just you know he's either going to make it or not. And they walked out, and the priest you know figured that you know he was giving his last rites, and I was about oh to God. expire. And and uh, I did get to see a light. And it's uh, if you ever you remember Christmas candy, Christmas ribbon candy, white and gold. It kind of reminds me of that, and I can only huh. visualize this this moment on the right side of my brain. I cut to close my eyes and it's all, it only it's only coming in from the right side. I cannot visualize that same moment on my left side of my brain. That's crazy. But you have a tremendous yeah. sense of being uh, of no sense of self. Uh you, you you know, you're not you anymore. It's just this being. You just you're there, but it's not you. It's so hard to explain. And I've talked with other near death experienced people who have even even uh, more in depth experiences than myself, and right. uh, they uh, they they added you know that part. You know, said, yeah, no, I had no sense of me, Dennis. You know, it was just this light, me, and this light it was warm and so inviting and peaceful. And I do remember that. But uh, anyway, so reason for telling you that is that it affected my eye-hand coordination, and I was not a very good baseball player at all because I couldn't catch. And I couldn't swing a baseball bat to hit the ball because I didn't have that coordination. And I wouldn't have that coordination for many years. Uh, and in fact, I couldn't punt the football until I was in college. I could not do it. And that was crazy because I was a good athlete. Hmm. 
I was super fast right. and super quick. But uh, as far as eye hand stuff went, so anyway, I um, I and that ended the Dodgers and trying out for the local baseball team, the Robins, ended my baseball experience. And I, honest to God, I've never watched a baseball game since then. Wow. And uh, this, this, my, my, so, so my never, league, never, never uh, Mets fan. I tried. <laughs> hmm. I tried, but, but you know, <laughs> no, it, no, it's, 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 it sounds, it sounds like it's, it's less about the Mets and more about baseball and the Dodgers. <laughs> I just, you know, I have a Mets yeah, fan. That was, you know, Eddie Frame Pool and all of the disastrous, the Goose, what's his name? Goose, Goose, somebody? Oh, God, there I'll tell you real quick just before, before you continue that one of the amazing things, amazing things about uh, 1962 is that 50 of those 120 losses, they had the tying run on base or on deck. The tying or winning run on base or on deck, 50 of those 120 losses in the ninth inning. Well, well that's perfect, perfectly understandable because they were the Mets. <laughs> that doesn't surprise yep. me yep. one bit. Uh, half of those go differently. They don't even lose 100 games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yep. Um, but the, the funny, the, the interesting part of all of this is that my brother continued with baseball. And uh, in 1962 or 63, was offered a contract with the Mets and the Cardinals. They offered him five grand, and uh, he was uh, engaged. That was when I was 64, and he was engaged. And his girlfriend's fiance told him, "If you take that, I will not marry you, because you'll be gone. You'll be gone too long." And he said, "Okay," and he didn't take that adventure. And um, I never understood that. Wow. Did they stay together? Well, <laughs> the question? No, they, no, no. As a matter of fact, it oh my God. I was about 20 years later. And, um, well, 20 years. Yeah. Later, that's, no, they, okay. No, no, at least, at least they got 20 years, years out of it, though. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he, uh, he got that. And, uh, but I did have a I did have a nice athletic career in, in in high school and college football, so that that was nice for me. But um, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't catch a football either in high school. I mean, I could, but I would get so tense that, that the ball would bounce. Well, we talked. Hands, you know, but, we talked a little bit. We talked about a little bit uh, of that era. We talked a little bit at the beginning of that era. So I I'd like to segue into the second half of our show in the Levittown mode now. In terms, in terms of Levittown, what was your perception of the suburbs uh, prior to 1959, when you were just a kid, uh, and every, every, a lot of people were already moving to the suburbs? Um, and you know, I, I, it sounds like your dog is is uh, barking at the suburbs as we speak. But the, the, so, in terms, like you always hear, you always hear that Levittown is. You know, like the first big Long Island suburb of modern conception. But hey, what, what what is your uh, both your uh, understanding your your learnings of the suburb and, and the history of, of Levittown? Um, and, and would you would you still say now that 
it was like everything needs a brand, and so Levittown was that brand, or was it really true that Levittown really is it? It, 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 it there was nothing like it beforehand. Well, there were some smaller communities like it, but nothing on the scale, and nothing at the price, and nothing with the innovations that brought the price down that people, the contractors from around the world came to see as Bill Levitt built Levittown. He, first of all, a Levitt house never has a basement. Huge expense right there, gone. And what he did was he poured a concrete floor and he put the plumbing the heating plumbing in that concrete floor called radiant heat. And he planned pools and play areas and parks. And, you know, we had the, with the, the north, we had the, we had four green, five greens, the north, south, east, west uh, village greens. And actually go back to Billy Joel. Billy Joel hung at the west village green, and I was at the north village green with my, with my tribe. And um, the, each green had a pool basketball court, football field, you know, what we commandeered as a football field, and uh, buildings that we commandeered at the handball courts, which we, con- we, you know, I left my house at 11 o'clock in the morning in high school, and I didn't come back until, I don't know, dinner time, and ate, and then went right back out to the green. And we played handball and football all day long. And then when it got close to football season, we would do the same thing, except that instead of playing touch football at the green, we'll go down to the high school, lift weights, and then play touch football with the team. So it was, a, to me, though, I, when I first saw my house in Levittown, Sam, I really thought I had died and gone to heaven because we didn't have a pool in, in Ridgewood. Then, as I said before, it's concrete and asphalt. And here, you know, you step out of a car and there's an apple tree in your front yard. And, you know, two more in the back. And everybody had apple trees and peach trees. And to me, that was something. They had, and this might sound silly, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 11 years old. And I thought one of the neatest things was that we had a garden hose that you attached to the outside of the building. And it didn't run through the apartment to wash your car at the front window. And I thought that was, oh, man, a garden hose. That you could just, you have to go and hook up the sink. And then your mom would disconnect it while you were doing something because she had to wash the dishes or whatever. And uh, the radiant heat, uh, linoleum uh, tile floors, not linoleum, but some nice tile, um, separate bedrooms, you know, which was nice, too, that they closed the door and there weren't any walk-through situations like a lot of the railroad flats you'd walk through from one, the front of the building to the back of the building through bedrooms and whatever. And... Um, just the idea of having all of that grass and you could ride your bikes and, you know, and you know, don't worry that much about cars and, you know, all of the facilities we had kids. I had, I think people like 20, how 20, 20 houses on my block. So a uh, small block. And uh, I think we had like 65 kids. I counted one time in my age. It was truly the baby boom generation. And um, in Ridgewood, that same block would contain well over a hundred kids. I mean, that's how many kids those, those veterans had that pent up demand <laughs> expressed itself in my generation. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but the funny thing is, is that that baby boom happened all around the world. That once right. the war was over, the Russians, the Germans, right. the Japanese, everybody was having kids and uh, it, it is the baby boom generation. Uh, but but he was an ama- Levitt was an amazing guy, 
he was knocking out, I think, 15 houses a day, turning over 15 houses a day. He ended up building, I think, 17,000 houses in five square miles. And he, they were not for sale. You can only rent them. And one of the things that really disturbs me is that people de- de- describe Bill Levitt as a bigot, and he was certainly not a bigot. You could not get a loan in a white neighborhood if you were a person of color in the 1950s. And it wasn't until the Fair Housing Act of 1964 that mm. the discrimination towards that stopped. Now, uh, if you read John Hope Franklin's autobiography, John Hope Franklin was America's preeminent black historian. And if you read his autobiography, he talks about trying to buy a house in New York. And he had New York Life as his life insurance policy, and, they, and he had a pretty big, what do they call it, when you build up an, uh, a lot of dollars in your, in your life insurance policy. And he wanted to borrow against it to buy a house. And you know what New York Life told him? No, we won't lend you, we won't lend you your own money for that. So it was a systemic thing. It wasn't just, you know. So, so, it wasn't just so, you're, one so you're saying, like, like, I mean, a big deal is that, that you know, uh, uh, and this is, you know, it, it's just you're bringing up an entire uh, thing that I'm going to have to explore that I have yet to do so from a from a, a, a literary research level. Um, but the, mm-hmm. the you're saying that Levitt, Levitt specifically, you know, he would be open to lending to anybody. The banks, however, were the ones and the insurance companies were the ones that were were not playing by the by the the equality rules of of the the act you know of 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 life if you will <laughs> not not just what wasn't written up until that point. Yeah, well, what I think about Bill Levitt, I think that he was he was a pragmatist, and you were not going to sell homes in that area if you had black people. So that was part of it. Plus, they couldn't get a loan. So why bother? Even with the GI Bill and all that business, no, you couldn't get it because they actually redlined mm. people of color out of certain neighborhoods. So, and that and that was just them and, just being like, well, we can't. And that that was just that. This is the systemic racism that people try to deny, and that 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 you know you. you uh, and I, I don't like getting political on here exactly, but at the same time, you know, you're talking about the integration of baseball basically happening with this as the backdrop. Um, yes. It, 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 took, it took another from 1947 to 1964, you know, that, that's a long time. Uh, and, and at the time, from a political standpoint, Jackie Robinson didn't even get as much credit in many ways uh, until way later down the road posthumously because of his political affiliations. Um, right. Uh, it, it, and, you know, so just, but in terms of this Levittown part and, and what was going on in Brooklyn in terms of real estate speculating, you know, this is the systemic racism that we want people to acknowledge. Yeah. Um, and they have back in the, in the late 50s and 60s, um, they would spread rumors 
and I, I remember a few of those panic moments in my neighborhood that blacks were moving in or a black family had bought a house or moved into an apartment and they actually had blockbusting where they had black people move in who were pretty tough guys and would then, you know, put the radio on the windowsill and blast, you know, black music and drive the, the, the local whites crazy. But the other thing that was happening too was that people <laughs> wanted just, it Let's just throw it out there. Let's just throw it out there how good that music was at the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, they, they didn't uh, – it wasn't like they were being nice neighbors either. Some of the blockbusting tactics, uh, tactics that they used – uh, the people that they, that did them weren't nice people, and they caused you know problems and all. But it was also combined with the white flight of you know everybody looking for their American dream. I, I know my mom, you know, her she often said that her dream was her house in the country with the white picket fence, which was exactly what she bought. And I have to say, she bought it because she arranged for everything. My father did not want to leave um, Ridgewood. That's where his buddies were. That's where he, you know, he he had his own little life there. That uh, right. was not exactly, you know, it was the it was a rich guy's life. You know, go drinking with your friends. Well, De- Dennis, night. Yeah. Dennis, I, I just want to say if if you have uh, till ninety minutes, uh, you know, basically another forty five minutes, I'd love to see how far this thing can go because. I, I, you're, you're bringing up your dad uh, and him not wanting to leave Ridgewood. And we haven't even talked about your parents' roots. So here, here's where I, first I want to go, uh, before we go to your parents' roots, I wanted to go back to Ridgewood before Levittown and talk about the father again. Um, so, um, you know, just to think, think about that day and – what, where were you before the fire? Were you, uh, it didn't have, you weren't home when it happened. Were, were you? No, this was, the, this was the crazy part about the whole thing. Um, my oldest brother, Clark, was staying, well, our, our houses, my grandparents' house and our house, they, were, they met Caddy Corner in their backyards. My grandparents' house was on, on, on Palmetto Street. We were on Irving, and they met at the corner not at the the outside corner, but kind of like an inside corner. So we could cut through their yard and then go into their building. And my grandfather was not well at the time. And his wife, my grandmother, had gone out to visit with her daughter um, in Huntington. No, yes, yes, she went out, her son rather. And they took my older sister, Pat, with them. My brother Clark stayed with my grandfather that night just, you know, to keep check on him. I was in North Babylon because I spent a lot of my summertime with this aunt and uncle of mine. And it just left my two younger brothers at the time downstairs with my dad um, watching TV. And I, I want to just say this, and this is crazy. Um, they were watching, dad had fallen asleep, and my brothers were watching Sea Hunt with Lloyd Bridges, which was one of our favorite shows. <laughs> and, uh, and my mother came running downstairs. Her name was Marie, yelling, Clark, Clark, the house is on fire. 
and there was no water upstairs, so she ran downstairs to get a bucket to throw it on the fire. <laughs> By the time they did that, the fire was consuming the upstairs, and um, no good. And then somebody called the fire department. They put the fire out. So when I came, so I got picked up the next day by a, a distant relative who was, happened to be in the area, and they made arrangements to get me driven out because I don't think we even had a car at that time. So we, they drove me from North Babylon to Ridgewood. I got there about 10 o'clock at night, and when I got out of the car. My heart flipped because there was my house. You know, the windows were gone. Smoke looks up the front of the building. Um, when I walked in, my dad had gotten hurt. You know, his face was uh, cut, and I, I, I was, and I just started to cry. There's nothing else I could do. I mean, I just was overwhelmed. Nobody told me. They, they just said, something happened at your house. I don't think it's too bad. And that's what I walked into. I was like, holy shit. And uh, <clears throat> so three months later, we were going out of there. And it uh, goes back to the Yankee fans. Standing in, we had a little vestibule that could stand and just look, look at the world go by. And I'm standing there after the fire. And David Lord... Doug Christian and another kid who I didn't like. And the reason I didn't like him was they were nasty Yankee fans. And as they walk by my house, they look at me and they go, Oh, you live there? And I was like crushed. I said, Holy, you know. And then, and then of course, you know, it, the good news was to come. We're going to get this beautiful new house in Levittown. Not new, but to us new. And um, so going back to uh, the fire and Sea Hunt. My mom died on March 10th, 1998, and Lloyd Bridges, the star of Sea Hunt, died the same day. Oh my God! And what's funny is it's that I was good. just looking up, I was just looking Sea Hunt up, and I I literally just saw that date of death because I was looking up Lloyd Bridges. Yeah. Yeah. And that and of course his sons are uh, Bo Bridges and. Um, What's the other son's name? Just three sons. And, and can, can I just say, Jeff Bridges, can I just say that if ever there was an example of how you can raise your kids right in Hollywood, Lloyd Bridges has Jeff and Bo. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and my dad was in a movie with Bo Bridges. Really? Wow. That's yes. cool. A, life, a lifetime film directed by Diane Keaton called Wildflower also starring Reese Witherspoon and Patricia Arquette. And it was back in 1991. Oh. It was Reese Witherspoon's first movie. And a uh, shameless plug, I'm making a documentary about my dad called Max. So, well, that, that, I'm not going to go on a tangent about that, but that's, you know, fun that we're talking about the, 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 the show business, if you will. <laughs> and, and, and life's small, small coincidences as they were. Yes. So Exactly. Um, yeah, so, 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 so in terms uh, yeah. of, so in terms of the, the fire and your dad not wanting to leave Ridgewood, um, I think start if you could with what your dad wanted to do after the house was burned, other than you know kill the landlord, but uh, you know say five hail marys of course, but um, what, what, <laughs> so what what did what did your dad want to do, uh, and and. What were some of the emotions behind that because of his his Brooklyn roots? You know, I, I think that 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 was his home. 
his buddies, you know, how hard that was for him to, you know, uproot out of the place he had lived since he was 13. Um, and now he's 40 and they got to make this move. And now he's got to commute and now he's got to buy a car and now he's got to get a telephone. We didn't even have a telephone. I mean, my, my problem oh, my was, God. Wow. right. Yeah. The, the problem was with my dad, he belonged to that cohort of men that believed that when you got paid, you earned the evening at the bar on Friday. And then what was ever left was brought home, put on the dining room table, and that was called table money. And that's what the wife lived on for the rest of the week. And there were lots of men like him. Of course, there were many, many more that weren't like him and saved money, et cetera, and did those type of things. But um, that's, the way, that's the way it was with him. And he was, uh, you know, actually, he was, he was an alcoholic. And, um, you know, the, he was both the fun alcoholic and the not-so-fun alcoholic. He, he used to take me, just babysit me when I was eh, maybe four or five years old. And um, for some reason, I was put in his care. And dad at the time worked for Wilson Hoist. And what, what they did was they repaired elevators in the, the, the high buildings in New York. And you know how other... You know, I'm sure you've had this experience with your parents or you've known people, you know, contract will say, you see that house? I built that house. You see that uh, See that building? I put all the windows in that building. I did the plumbing there. You know, my father's claim to fame was there was a um, tombstone carving place in our neighborhood, and they had this big hoist. And then below the hoist, and the hoist was about 75 feet in the air. Below that was a steel girder coming out 90, uh, at a 90-degree angle. And my dad was, well, lubricated. And he fell off the hoist, and he hit Oof. the girder. And he said, you know, God protects children and drunks. Because if I wasn't drunk, I'd have probably been <laughs> stiffened off on that. Yeah, no, no, this is, this is, I swear, I'd have probably bounced off of that girder and killed myself. You know? And we were like, oh, wow, Dad, that's awesome. <laughs> so his claim to fame was, you see that girder? Yeah, that was, that was, and every time we drove by it, it was out by Highland Park. Every time we drove by that uh, particular uh, uh, place, he would point that out to us. And we would all look out the window, you know, oh, wow, look at that. That's what Dad almost died. <laughs> But uh, so oh, he wow. had that thing that we, that we we would he would actually take me drinking with him at night. We, you know, I'd, you know, dinner was dinner was pistachio, pistachios the red kind, not the white kind they have today, and uh, peanuts out of the peanut you know out of the vending machines and and as much soda as I wanted. It, I was unlimited that night. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was so sick. And then he had a buddy George, and George was a Irishman and he would he was a nice guy but he was older and he used to tell me that every time that we were out he would tell me this story and he started to cry it was a real maudlin story so yeah my dad we he worked on the Brooklyn Bridge and every day the only thing he took for lunch was an egg and I'm, wow geez and he'd come home at night he'd be exhausted and he only had that egg 
And then later on, I got into the construction business, and you know, I was a young man, you know, slapping together houses and stuff, and you, you're exhausted. I said, how, how, thought, how could anyone, anyone do this kind of work and have just one egg? As the marvel at, you know, George's father. Well, in the 1980s sometimes, Ken Burns did a documentary on the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. And as it turns out, bars sprung up all around the work areas on both the uh, Manhattan side and the Brooklyn side. And if you had a nickel, you could buy a beer. And if you bought a beer, you had a free lunch. <laughs> so every night at dinner, George, every night at dinner, George, George had this, George's father had this pity party for himself. And of course he didn't tell the rest of the story because you just couldn't do that kind of work on just one egg a day. Uh, maybe you could do it on a quart of whiskey and an egg. I don't know. But yeah, that was, that was his famous right, story. Right. And uh, I, I, you know, I don't know how they could drink that much and live. And, you know, cause I just, I could never consume that much beer or anything, you know, maybe once in a while, but not like my dad did and not like many of the guys in the neighborhood did. So, and also Bushwick was the area that uh, Jackie Gleason grew up in. So Ridgewood, Bushwick, you right. know, they're right yeah. there. And uh, and my grandfather used to shoot pool with Jackie Gleason in the Halsey Pool Hall in Ridgewood. And oh. Jackie was Jackie was a young guy then; he wasn't famous or anything. And my grandfather said, "Yeah, he's, he's you know he's a pretty funny guy." And he was a pretty good pool shooter, too, a pool player. So that was a claim to fame. That and... Uh, and did, and uh, he uh, ended up uh, in that pool movie. Um, what's it called? Yeah, uh, The Hustler. The Hustler. Yes. The Hustler. Yes, he played, uh, what's it, Moscone. Um, mm-hmm. And then that, that same grandfather, his sister... And I, I, this just kills me because I, I kept notes on most of my family as, as the older people told me stories. And my grandfather's sister was a Zigfield Polly's girl. And her good friends were Jim Cagney, James Cagney, and somebody McHugh. I can't, I can't remember his first name, but he was a pretty well-known actor in the 30s. And these were her friends. And... Um, she bought it. She did very well with the Follies and she bought a house on Long Island and it was a party house they bought. And then she would have all these famous actors at the house. And I didn't find this out until a couple of months ago. I was so mad. Keith <laughs> May had the story. Oh my God. And it's because oh, they're all gone now. You know, the only one I kn- the yeah, only one that knows yeah. the story is my, my, my dad's youngest sister. And she's in her late seventies. <laughs> So she told me this. I was like, holy shit, that's crazy. Jimmy Cagney, your friends with Jimmy Cagney. You know that? Oh, here's another, here's another great story. My dad's brother, <laughs> my, my, my Walter, the grandfather, the pool player, um, was Burke. And his son, Tommy Burke, uh, was a real roustabout. He was a tough guy. And he was a little guy. And he looked a little bit like Clark Gable. And... Um, he could get into a fight within two seconds of meeting you. He was just one of those guys. And eventually he moves to California. And who does he meet? He, marry, he marries this woman named Kitty Simber. C-I-M-B-E-R. 
Kitty Simber's brother, this I think Harry Simber, and Harry Simber's wife is Jane Mansfield. Not crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and then Kitty, this is just really crazy. Then Kitty becomes Jane's hairdresser. And Jane comes to New York at the same time that Tom and Kitty came for a visit. So Tom calls my dad up and says, hey, Clark, why don't you come out with Kitty and I tonight? We're having dinner with Jane Mansfield with our husband. And, of course, dad's (laughs) like, oh, yeah, I'm down. I'm down. I'm going. (laughs) My mother says, my mother, she says, I wouldn't go to a dinner with that Pouton. <laughs> oh, God. A, a nice, a nice, not so nice name for a woman. Anyway, but I, I, but you know, then I think my father can't do a census. And mom, of course, you know, yeah, I, I look back on it. I go, yeah, I don't think I'd want to do that. I wouldn't want to expose my wife to the most beautiful woman in the world and sit there at dinner and everybody's ogling at you. And you're just simple people. Nah, it's a, I don't think I would do that, but that's the story. And then later, wait, wait, it, well, wait, there's more, Sam. <laughs> later, <laughs> Kitty is involved in all kinds of like entertainment stuff, and she develops. She and her brother develop the idea for, if you remember this or not, you might be too young. Glamorous ladies of wrestling, glow wrestling. Do you remember that? Uh, so she developed because I know the show Glow. That's so it. There, there That's was a, there's a television show about it. Yeah. Yeah, that was Kitty, my aunt. Wow. But oh my aunt. God. Yeah. See, we did not talk about that in the biography, huh? <laughs> no, no, I just, I just put it together. Yeah, but it is. It, it just was, you know, so crazy that. So this is your 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 aunt uh, is your uh, your. Your, I'm sorry, your father's uh, sister. Sister-in-law. A sister-in-law. Tommy okay. Burke is, yes, Tommy Burke is his half brother. Um, okay. My, this is, uh, <laughs> this might be, this might be the, this might be the the, the most the most uh, crazy interview you've probably ever had. Stories of coincidence. My youngest brother, my youngest brother, Clint, loved baseball. And he was in his 30s and he was playing over 30 hardball, hardball out on Long Island. And I um, can't remember his name. But I think his last, the, guys, the guy that put the lead together, his last name is Sigler. And his daughter was um, the daughter of Tony Soprano in the series, The Sopranos. Oh yeah, so, I actually my dad was uh, my dad was on the Sopranos and I I I met her once. <laughs> yeah, so um Jamie. Anyway, Jamie, right? And uh so the local news crew comes out to do a story on these men playing over 30 hardball. And they interviewed my brother. Now my brother Champney's not a, a very common name and Clinton is not a very common name either. So they interview him and they put his name at the bottom of the screen. And this woman sees Clint's name and she lives up in the Bronx and she tracks him down and finally finds him at work. He worked for a brokerage house at the time. And she says, she calls him and says, are you related to 
my uncle, Clinton Champney. And Clint says, I don't think so. And <clears throat> it goes, so it, what it turns out was this. Um, he, in fact, was the grandson of Clinton Champney, impregnated Walter's wife, Rose, before she met Walter when she was 14. She delivered my dad at 15, and Clint abandoned her. So my oh dad my was told the story that, yeah, my dad was told the story of Clint, his father, having fought, well, he was a sailor, uh, and he fell overboard and was never seen again. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, of course, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. Uh, that was, He would have died in 1920. Uh Clint actually died in 1951. Had been married twice uh, in his in his last quarter of his life. He's living back home with his mother. He's he was a real he was the black sheep of the family, and uh, he was really he was really I had to be a piece of work. I wish I could have met him, but there's just no way because my dad didn't even know who his father was, other than he exactly. had his name and supposed, <laughs> you know. But wait, there's more. <laughs> so. Let's go back about seven years. My wife is on line or in the doctor's office waiting for an appointment, and they call her name out, Champney. So she gets up and goes to the window, and uh, this guy's next to her, says, and he says, uh, Champney, and she says, Champney. And look at each other. He says, I'm Champney. He says, no, I'm Champney. <laughs> so it turns out this guy's name is David Champney, and um, he lives in the area, in this area, Baltimore area now. Um, and he had the entire family genealogy sent to me. We go back to the Battle of Hastings. Henri Champney was a captain for the French forces <laughs> at the Battle of Hastings. <laughs> Richard Champney moved to Massachusetts, I think, in 1643, which is about 20 years after the founding of Boston and becomes a real estate entrepreneur of some kind and donates, I think, 40 acres of land to Harvard College. So I've got this rich tradition of uh, people I never had any idea about my entire life. I'm in my <laughs> 50s and 60s and 70s. So, it's yeah, amazing, what, right? Isn't that amazing the way that works? Yeah. Speaking of which, yeah, so so what what were your mother's roots uh, in Brooklyn? If, if oh. in Brooklyn, where did she come from? Oh, my, my mom mom was Sicilian. Her her parents came over in 1914. Well, her mother came over in 1914. Her father was already here. He went he went back to go find a wife. This his name was Antonio. So Antonio says, "Hey, you know, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get a nice girl, bring her back here. You know, have a family, settle down." And I think he went back and forth twice, and his brother went back and forth a number of times, but there were like four or five brothers, there was, and there was, it was chain migration. The oldest brother was here first, cousins or whatever, they sponsored you. So uh, we have, oh, I have relatives that aren't real relatives, but were sponsors of my grandparents, who I know as cousins or aunts or uncles. Anyway, so Antonio goes back, and he's uh, wandering around Sicily looking for a wife, and uh He's, uh, he hasn't become an American citizen yet. And they say, you Antonio Rosica? And he says, yeah. He says, good. You're drafted. Come on with us. So he spent two years in the Italian Italian army. <laughs> and, and then he meets my grandmother and brings her over. <laughs> so she, so she, she, was, she, she always bragged on the fact that she came over first class. 
because my my grandfather was a very good tailor, and uh, they did very well um, in New York. His brother had the politicians. His brother's name was Erasmus, and Antonio had a lot of the big executives in New York as his personal tailor, and he did well, and they were both excellent tailors. And in fact, the fact that Erasmus served then a few years later, Erasmus got drafted into the American army, and he's about to go to the front. And this captain walks up to him and says, is your name Risika? And he says, yeah. And he says, well, you're a tailor? I heard you're a tailor. He says, yeah. He says, well, you're not going to the front. You're staying right here in the uh, mountains of Italy, and you're going to be the company tailor. And what he mostly takes care of are are the the officers. And um, so anyway, it was just pure, pure luck. So Antonio brings Tulia over to... Tuli was my grandmother, to America. And she's so proud to be in this first-class cabin, and everybody else is in steerage. And, and I can only, you can only imagine what steerage was, because this boat journey starts in Odessa, Russia. And then they pick up people in Turkey and Greece, and they pick up all kinds of people, <laughs> the cooking and the smells. It just must have been horrendous. Well, my poor grandmother was seasick the entire time. And then they landed, and she thought the seasickness would go away, but it never went away because what she found out was she was pregnant. <laughs> so um, in the 1930s, <laughs> and Antonio and Erasmus got together, and they bought themselves that house in Ridgewood. So you imagine at the height of the Depression, these two Italian immigrants are buying a house together. One lived upstairs, one lived downstairs. With the family, so it was great for me because I had an extended family. I walked into that building, and downstairs I had my my aunt Tiadel, and I just called Erasmus' uncle, and uh, upstairs my grandparents, and their children who didn't move hadn't moved out yet. So it was really a wonderful experience for me as a child, you know, just walking into that walking into that their uh, their house, and um, so uh, what was I going to say? My grand oh my poor grandmother. So she comes here, she's a peasant in Sicily, um, and her husband's a tailor. So she decides the first time, you know, she's going to do her husband's shirts, and he's a walking billboard because he has to look good because he's a tailor. So she washes, you know, by, by, you know, by hand, boils the shirts, wrings them out, does all of that, puts some starch in the water, puts, hangs them out to dry, brings the shirts back in, they're like a rock. So my God, how much starch and what this American starch is crazy. I have to rewash it. So she washes them, puts them out <laughs> and, and brings them back to later and they're even harder. And she says, Oh my God, this American starch, what am I doing wrong? Puts them out again and brings it back in. And then she starts to cry because she's ruined her husband's shirts with the starch. She can't get the starch out of the shirts. And her sister, Angelina, comes. She sees poor Tulia at the table, head down on the table, banging her head, crying because she ruined her husband's shirts. Where are they going to find money for new shirts? And Angelina looks around the room, and she sees my grandfather's shirt standing up against the wall. And she says, hey, Tulia, this is America. We have a winter here. <laughs> Those shirts are not, nothing wrong with them. The shirts are frozen. <laughs> so, 
she had no she had no idea that you know I mean her idea of coal was <laughs> they take a watermelon and put it in the bucket, dot, drop it down in the well, keep it there for the day, and it will come up, you know, nice and cold. That was their idea of cold. I don't think she ever saw a snow right. or a rifle till she came here. So that was that was that was <laughs> sort of, she was a story. It, it was a wonderful, warm Italian family, and uh, uh, it's great great thing that I had yeah. them in my life. So, they really they really made a difference. So so, did, so, so your dad's uh, um, he, he was. Straight up, uh, uh, just American French. No, Dad was uh, well French. If you go back to the Battle of Hastings, but no, Dad, that Dad's family was British, English. Okay. And Clinton. Okay, so so first, what was the what was the feeling in within uh, uh, the the Sicilian family uh, for oh. for marrying a non-Sicilian? Yeah, that was. I don't think that was a real. Ha- you know, they never really talked about it, but I think I knew that. Uh, my grandfather was not real happy with my dad because he was Irisha. And, uh, you know, he, my dad drank and my grandfather knew he drank. And, you know, what was he going to say, though? You know? Um, well, so my so where, where did they meet? Where did they come together? Um, in Ridgewood. I don't know exactly how they came together. You know, I don't know that story. That's funny. I don't know that story. And nobody, nobody would know because everybody's gone. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, the mom was a pretty attractive lady, you know, um, and um, very funny, very witty. As was dad. I mean, he was quick. He was he was he was sharp as a tack when he was, you know, when he got into his, his witticisms, um, and um, I, 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 dad always considered himself Irish, because his real grandmother, who he didn't know was in fact Irish. And Clinton the first married Byrne, what was her first name? Anna Byrne. B Y R N E. Anna Byrne was the family's housekeeper. And Clinton the first then begat Clinton the second with the family housekeeper. <laughs> the Champney Boys <laughs> The Jamie boys uh, had a little trouble keeping their uh, privates in their pants, I think. Anyway, so yeah, it sounds like um, it. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just a crazy story of the whole thing, and you know all the research I've done on the Champney family. Um, you know, they evidently were some real characters and some real stories that will never be told. Um, yeah, my my dad is named after this guy Clarkson Crolius who was a very famous guy, his family in the 1700s. If you look up Clarkson Crolius, this guy was like pretty well known in the New York area. Uh, and the Champneys uh, actually had a jewelry store and uh, Champney Smittens. And the store existed in Brooklyn at the, where the uh, base of the Williamsburg Bridge is today in Camden Square. And Champney and Smittens were partner, and then one day Smitten got smitten with the money, and he fled with all the jewels and the company's assets and went down to South America. Never heard from again. And um, that broke the line of jewelers on one side, I think, to a certain extent. And, of course, there was family battles and stuff from what I can gather and letters and whatever I've inherited. Um, So... 
by the time my real grandfather comes along, the family is pretty dysfunctional. One part of the family has some pretty decent money. And the other half of the family, I think, is, you know, has been disinherited somehow. So it's not a, it's not a fun time for them. But uh, they were. That The Champney family was longtime Brooklyn residents. I don't know when they first settled in Brooklyn uh, and left the uh, Massachusetts area. But, um, yeah, and Dad, of course, was a huge Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Oh, my God. You know, that was watching the yeah. baseball game with him on a Friday Watching a baseball game with him on a Friday night. I mean, yeah, Lewis didn't go back and sitting him sitting there re- drinking his Knickerbocker beer <laughs> <laughs> or Saturday night. Knickerbocker was what he drank. But, uh, so that's a great place to, to loop back around. I wanted to finish with the Dodgers, uh, of course. You know, that's that's what Brooklyn yeah. was coming around, and that's what this this project always comes back around to. And so, uh, what? Who was your dad's favorite player? Uh, what are some of the stories you heard from your dad regarding the Dodgers? And how did your mother take to baseball? Um, I'll take the last question first. I, I think don't think mom was a real big fan. I don't think mom was a real big fan. Uh, she became a fan when my brother Clark became a baseball player, uh, a good baseball player. And, you know, she was really excited when the scouts came out to see him in this big game. We all went out. I was only 13 then. And we all had to go out to Long Island somewhere. He was, Clark was pitching in some kind of all-star game. And uh, so she was a big fan of baseball. Um, she did come to my football games. Dad didn't come until finally his friends at work said, you know, you ought to go see your kid play at least once before he graduates. <laughs> and um, one, of his, one of his friends told him, because he was getting his overtime on Saturday, so he did, he did show up for one, game, one or two games, which was nice, you know. Um, but mom, mom wasn't a real big fan of baseball or, or any, any sports, really. Um, she was just, you know, an Italian mom. And, you know, that's what her, her life was family. And her grandchildren, her children, and uh, that's what her family—that's what her life revolved around. But she was an extraordinary woman in a lot of ways. Um, she had a job. I'm sorry. Up for classical in the stenography, typing, whatever secretarial thing. And she went into Manhattan to get a good job as a secretary because she was a you know, top top person, and no one would hire her. And she couldn't figure out why. And then finally somebody said, it's your name. She said, why? Yeah, she said, change your name. Change your name. So she changed her name from Risika to Ross. And the next interview, she got a job. And one of the lessons (laughs) that she taught us, yeah, so one of the lessons that she taught us was that never judge people by what other people tell you about them. So she she told us a story about this other woman in the office when she started to work there. One day she corrals my mother and she says, Marie, I know that your last name isn't Ross and I know you're Italian. And mom figures, oh, she's a Jew. My goose is cooked. She's going to tell somebody. And her heart's pounding a million beats a minute. And the woman says, don't worry. Your secret's safe with me. Just want to let you know that I know. That's all. And, you know, mom got a lesson in prejudice. And she passed that lesson on to us. Not to judge people by what you might think they are, or the, you know, what you've heard about them. You know, judge each one one at a time. And my dad was pretty good about that stuff too, even though he was Archie Bunker-like in a lot of ways. Um, but he had black friends and uh, work and all. So that was a, that that was a little bit different experience for 
you know, a white kid uh, in Ridgewood and then Levittown because it was, there were no black people in Ridgewood. There were only one, there was only one black family uh, in Levittown and I am friends with him today uh, on Facebook, uh, Bob Cotter. And we did have one black student other than Bob that came in under a special program with the Friends Society. They had closed all the schools in his Virginia district and opened up charter schools or private schools because they didn't want blacks going to public schools with the white children. So we got this kid, Howie Alexander, a very bright kid, very nice kid, uh, and a good athlete. And he came to our school and was the only black kid in the school. And Jerry Jewell was, his, this was his story, a Jerry story. He uh, came, came to the building early, and there was Howie, who had gone through summer practice, and he knew, he said, Howie, what, what are you doing here? So well, he said, I, I didn't want to get beat up. <laughs> so Jerry says, what? So he says, yeah, I, I, I was afraid that, uh, you know, if I came in with everybody, they might start with me. So he says, don't you worry about that. You come down to my office and sit with me until it's time. So he takes him up to his home room, and there in his home room is these guys, Tony Passioni, John, Ches- John Cesaria, and I think Bobby Cassidy. Bobby Cassidy was the number two light, light heavyweight in the world, Irish Bobby Cassidy in the 1960s. And I hmm. got to get beaten up by him one time. And I got to get beaten up by him one time, <laughs> Sam. Swear it, it happened so quick. So many punches on the way down. He lifted me right off my feet. <laughs> and everybody came over and stopped him. We were playing football. I hit him in the face accidentally. And uh, I must have hit him pretty hard. And the next thing I know, he's throwing punches. And those hands are flying. And I could not believe As I'm going down, I'm saying to myself, I can't believe hands come up to space. <laughs> I'm getting the shit kicked out of me. <laughs> I would have jumped on top of Bobby. No, no, Bobby, Bobby, no, 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 Bobby, stop, 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 stop. Hit me in the face, hit me in the face. Bobby, I swear I didn't mean it. <laughs> so he takes he takes he takes Howie into this room with these three guys in the home room and Jerry says Now Tony was supposedly the toughest of them all. He went into a biker bar when he was sixteen and he told the bikers guys don't mess with my friend that they were giving a hard time to, or you'll deal with me. And he went in by himself at 16 years old. That's how tough that guy was. I mean, there were legendary tough guys in our town. And, uh, you know, Duffy, another one was Doug Duffy, who was a heavyweight boxer. And uh, he never got as far as Bobby Cassidy, but we used to go down to Sunnyside Garden to watch him fight. And um, so when Jerry said that to the, 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 the trio there, they said, okay, no problem. They said, Howie, anybody says anything to you, anything, you come and see us, we'll take care of it. <laughs> and Howie was such a great guy. He never had a problem, uh, never had a problem with anybody in the school, although he did start to date a white girl, and that started to get a little tough. And then Jerry told me that yeah. he, wanted, he, wanted to go to, he wanted to go to the prom. And then Jerry called the Hempstead football coach and said, do you have any kids that want to go to a prom? And I'll deliver him to Levittown and all that business, and he'll go. You know, she'll go to the prom with uh, Howie, and he arranged that. <laughs> so anyway, that was uh, yeah. It was it was it was it was a great experience growing up in Levittown. I I wouldn't trade it that time for anything in the world. 
it was, you know, it was really the Elijah Fields for me, you know, just mm-hmm. having, having the, I mean, we didn't have any money, but it was okay, you know, because I had my friends and we had athletics and, uh, you know, we weren't goody, goody two-shoes by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, one night we, I was about 15, me and my friends, three or four of us, and this young lady decided to go drinking, which was uh, one of the big pastimes in Lubbock Town. What are you doing this for? What are you doing tonight? I'm, all, I'm going drinking. Oh, okay. Where are you guys going? Azealia. Okay. So anyway, we got some older guy to buy us beer, and we got bags full of chips and beer, and we're going to head up to Azealia Field to drink. As we come around the corner of the building, there's a Nassau County cop, and my friend John Driscoll says, don't run. Now, I am the fastest guy in the world. You're not going to catch me. I don't care. you got a cop car or whatever. You're not going to catch me. And he says, he says, don't run. It's like a dope. I don't run. And the next thing I know is I'm in, we're, we're in the police car, and there's cops all over the place, and there's four or five of us, and we're getting hauled down to the 8th Precinct in Nassau County. <laughs> and, when my dad walked, <laughs> and, and when my dad walked in, he was a pretty rough character, and he looked mean. And he looked like kind of... Um, Jeez, I'm trying to think who he reminded me of a movie actor, but anyway, I, but uh, my my good friend said to me, he says, when your dad walked in, even the cops got scared. <laughs> 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 and uh, they actually they actually sent some patrol cars by my house that night to make sure that my dad didn't kill me. But in fact, it was interesting. Yeah, so right, at that time, my dad had quit. It was, it was quick. My dad had quit drinking, quit drinking, and he said to me, he says, you know, so I'm so disappointed in you. Don't you know the problem that I have with that stuff? And you would do that? Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah. Well, you know, my, really- my dad, uh, I never knew my dad was an alcoholic, but I always knew my dad is a recovering alcoholic. Uh, so, well, I, well, I know what you're talking never, about. Yeah, I, I never knew my dad drank till he came home sober <laughs> one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this <Yeah>. guy? <laughs> Who's this guy? Uh, Dennis, we, we've got to wrap up. The, the, the way I always say, uh, you know, I, I always uh, give our guests the last word, uh, as they say what your last word would be. But, but first of all, uh, before I pass it on to you, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been extremely enlightening, both uh, Ridgewood, uh, Levittown, as well as your personal history. It, it's just uh, – it, there's so many different places we could go in a, in another podcast, and I'd love to do that with you sometime. Oh, hey, the story of our wedding day is something you would not believe. It could be a movie, but that's for another time. And I'm, <laughs> I maybe I'll, maybe I'll send it to you privately, but that it, it is the craziest damn story you have ever read or heard. And you're like, nah, that's not true. But uh, there's hundreds of witnesses to it. So anyway, yeah, what, what would I like to say? I would like to say that I, I have cherished my time uh, growing up in Brooklyn because it gave me a certain uh, savoir-faire to uh, look at the world through that lens. And the Levittown thing was a godsend because one of the other things we didn't discuss was about my childhood friends. A lot of them died from drugs in the 60s, and we had just moved out of there, and that was coming into the neighborhood. So... I'm eternally, eternally grateful for everybody that helped my mom buy that house in Levittown. 
which was the landlord and relatives chipped in a hundred bucks, 50 bucks, you know, and we got that house and that was the absolutely the best day of my life up until that point. And, um, it was wonderful. It really was. And just, uh, just, just to think going from asphalt and concrete to fields and, you know, just, wow. Oh, and no Catholic school anymore. No more beatings, no more, none, none of that. That's, <laughs> And then, oh, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. Sister Mary and the thing. No, yeah, we got to do you a know, yeah, the Oh, my God. We gotta, school, that is, that's a, oh, that's, that's, that's a good Oh, point. my God. I have so many stories of Sister Mary Nathaniel and <laughs> Brother Ephraim and these people that thought they were doing the right thing by beating the living stuffings out of us. And uh, it was yeah. crazy. It was crazy. I mean, today they'd be trying God, to try with God's wrath, no as doubt. they say. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, but uh, yeah, it was it, it was uh, an amazing time in my life. I look back, I, and I and I really am grateful for all the nice things that happened to me in my life, because you know when you're in a bad place and something good happens, you appreciate things a hell of a lot more than if nothing bad ever happened to you. You know, yeah. you're just looking that go wow. Is that is for sure. And and unfortunately, a lot of people had to lose the Dodgers to discover that. Um, but but I uh, especially with your your near death experiences, as you were discussing, you know, you certainly can speak to it. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. I hope uh, I hope I didn't uh, bore you guys <laughs> or your fans. Oh, for sure not. And, and thank you all for listening today. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Dan.